Hi, I'm Ed Black, an attorney at Ropes and Gray, and I want to welcome everyone to uh, the latest edition of the RNG Tech Studio podcast. In this edition, we have my friend and partner, Fran Faircloth, data privacy and cybersecurity, just a, a wonderful attorney. Fran, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here. Yeah. Well, before we jump in, and I do want to talk about your practice because it's in a super interesting area. But before we jump in, who are you and what are the basics? So I am a partner in our data privacy and cybersecurity group. I'm based in our D.C. office. I live here with my husband and my two daughters. And I spend my time helping clients figure out privacy and cybersecurity questions. That could be a range of anything from, you know, making sure they have the right policies in place to helping them deal with a ransomware attack. So we help a, a really broad range of clients, technologically sophisticated businesses, but they can really be in any sector. So just in the last year, they've ranged from CEO of SolarWinds, who we've been representing in the wake of that you know, unprecedented cyber attack that happened there to businesses that include an HR company for the entertainment industry and a company that helps prevent school violence and bullying. So it's really just wow. kind of across the board companies where they're using technology and data in ways that we need to figure out how to kind of help protect and make it useful for them. I mean, that's a huge area. Can you give me some examples of the kind of problems clients have and the kind of solutions that you help bring to them? Sure. Um, so just as one example, um, in the past year, we've seen you know, a lot of increase in use of technology and everywhere, especially since COVID. So more monitoring, videoing, and use of tracking in offices and retail stores and even in to some extent. And along with that, there's been an increase in fears about Orwellian-type surveillance in the media and in popular opinion. And we've had a lot of clients that have been trying to figure out how to handle those fears, uh, how to respond to those fears so that they still can have the value and social benefit of their technology and they can highlight those you know, positive aspects of their products. So just as a specific example, uh, I mentioned a minute ago, I've been working with a company that uses educational technology that uses AI to help prevent suicide and student violence through through things like logging of student activity and um, using the AI to watch for things that could be indicators. And I think, you know, everyone would agree that preventing school violence, especially in our current climate, is, is something, something that we definitely want. But this client and others that have similar technology have been getting a lot of criticism for being overly intrusive and spying, quotation marks, on students. And so that, that's been a struggle that I've been helping them address through Things like communications with regulators and interest groups and making sure that they are putting reasonable protections in place like de-identification and data minimization so that they can still harness the value of the data-driven AI to protect students and prevent student deaths while balancing that against the impact on students' privacy. Wow. Now, that type of scanning and monitoring stuff with the AI, and I mean, that is a bleeding-edge concern. I have to say, though, that when, when I think about 
data and privacy and data cybersecurity issues uh, that I've heard about in the press over the past, uh, you know, few years, a lot of it deals with these uh, with these hacks, with uh, uh, you know some a cybersecurity breach of some kind that results not only in a lot of loss of data, but then an organization victim first they're victimized by the hackers, and then they've got lawsuits to contend with and regulators. Does your practice also embrace that kind of more traditional uh, cybersecurity incident? Yes, absolutely. And I think part of the value of the practice is that we work with clients across the board from you know setting up policies to working through the incident. So, for example, one of our clients is Bombas, the sock company. Love their socks. They, we started out working with them actually in the context of a transaction. And over the course of our relationship with them, ended up working with them on a couple of data breach incidents um, and helping them sort through what happened in those incidents, who needed to receive notice, and carried that all the way through to communications with regulators about the incident and class action litigation that came out of the incident that we were able to settle successfully for the client. It's um, a very kind of holistic view of helping clients protect against these events and helping them deal with them when they happen. Well, you know, one of the things that I used to hear from clients just in general is, oh, data privacy and cybersecurity issues, those are specialized issues. You know, uh, in my industry, we don't have them. Uh, But it, it seems to me that even if you're not collecting credit card data or filming students at school, I mean, obviously kids in school are very sensitive, but you read about in the paper these ransomware attacks and other things that, that seem to be going after all sorts of things. I mean, how do you see data protection and cybersecurity evolving? Oh, yeah. Um, our client base, I think, has really just expanded so much in the past few years because of this. Um, we're now seeing clients come in who didn't have a lot of credit card information or that very kind of traditional sensitive consumer information. And so they didn't traditionally think that this was an area that they needed to spend a lot of time on. And even they are facing um, these risks. So think, especially with the evolution of ransomware, we had um, a client this just recently who does, they, they don't collect personal medical information at all. All they do is um, work with kind of manufacturing or compounding of drugs. So sensitive in the sense that you need to get this right, but not in the sense of they have a lot of personal information that would need to be protected. That they got hit with a ransomware attack that shut down their operations in ways that, you know, they didn't realize before this happened was a risk that they were subject to. And so helping them kind of work through that and figuring out what happens when you get hit with a ransomware attack, who do you go to, who's the right person at the FBI to contact, how can they help you, what... Well, and, and, and hold on, do you, you know all that? You, 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 you can say, oh, Officer Jones, <laughs> that's who you want to... Uh, is, I, I mean, you help people work that out? Yes, absolutely. We uh, So there, 
you know, there are traditional ways of reporting incidents to the FBI. There's a form online that you can fill out, but honestly, it, it helps to have a direct contact because the FBI can be incredibly right. helpful in these events. They can sometimes even look at things like a ransom note and say, oh, that looks like this attacker from this place and can, can help yeah. clients in that way. So yes, I have, I have a couple of uh, FBI agents on speed dial that I can call if needed. <laughs> okay. Wow. Uh, that's great. Talked about ed tech. We talked about ransomware. Uh, I mean, the threats are are constantly evolving, but it seems to me, at least based on what you kind of hear in the paper, that the legal environment is also evolving. Where do you see this going? Is this something that's going to be regulated by state law, by federal law? Are there going to be international <laughs> treaties? How, how is if if you think ahead to you know I don't know three years from now five years from now, what does the data protection and cybersecurity environment look like in 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 terms of who's calling the shots? Yeah, this is a, an area of the law as you said that's really been rapidly changing, and so we have to really stay on top of all these changes. The past ten years or so, everyone you know kind of looked to the EU. Um, as the leader here with GDPR, they are kind of comprehensive privacy law. And a lot of companies that had dealings with clients in, and customers in the EU were up to date on that. But companies that didn't, you know, that were fully U.S.-based maybe weren't focusing on it as much because the U.S. didn't have the same kind of comprehensive privacy laws. But that's changing. So just in the last year, we've seen several states pass their own versions of comprehensive privacy laws. We're now up to five states that will come into effect in the new year. Well, California's already- What five are, what five are those? California, Colorado, Connecticut, Utah, and Virginia. Are, it, it, that's the count so far. Uh, but there are several others, at least four or five other states that still have um, active bills working their way through legislature. And over half of the states have had something introduced. So it's it's becoming kind of a patchwork of state laws here. There have been federal proposals. This past term federal proposal went pretty far, but it, it may still be a several years before we see federal U.S. law, and there will probably be several other state laws that pop up with their own version of comprehensive privacy well, laws it, between now and then. It sounds like keeping track of this is a huge uh, headache. I mean, uh, uh, obviously for those like you at the firm. But, you know, you have a giant law firm. You've got our, our London office, which is on top of GDPR, helping out with the GDPR perspective and so on. But how is it that we can help clients stay on top of this? Do we, do we come up with playbooks for them? Do we, uh, or do we have communication platforms? I mean, how do we solve a client problem in terms of keeping them fully informed of exactly where things stand? We do have pretty regular communications with our clients about uh, how the law is changing and how they might need to make changes to their internal um, rules or policies or procedures related to that. We also have um, a blog where we try to keep up with these changing things and post things there. And uh, many of our clients are actually subscribed to our blog so that they get notice of those posts once they go up and then uh, we can have further communications with them about how it might apply to them. 
But it, I mean, it really is an area that has to be watched, not just on the state law front. I mean, things are changing around advertising and tracking technology. There are a lot of changes going on right now that we've been helping clients keep up with. Globalization was the catchphrase for many years. And now we're looking at trading blocks replacing globalization, you know, global tension, um, uh, tension with China, tension with Russia. Uh, In a world of globalization, it it seemed like data would just flow everywhere. But do you think Mm -hmm. in the new world order that there's going to be sort of data jurisdictions, blocks of countries where data just can't cross borders and and we have to solve the problem for clients who are global of of how to work in multiple data jurisdictions. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, That's a problem we've seen come up more and more, especially China uh, seems to be kind of splintering off their own version of the internet where data can't go in or out, or they, they have complete control over data going in and out. We've seen proposals even in India, although it looks like that one's not going to go through, and other countries looking to have pretty strict data localization that makes it difficult for clients who want to run a global business. Um, They have to do things like set up um, data centers in all the different locations to deal with this. Well, and and again, how do, do we have tools for helping clients keep track of these jurisdictional issues and possible solutions for dividing the world up in this way? We do. We have various uh, trackers to help clients keep up with these changes and uh, various jurisdictional rules and how they differ as you cross lines. And then we've also been helping clients come up with policies to address this. So, you know, it used to be five years ago, even last year, even now, we see clients come in who have, for example, their online privacy policy will, will you know, have a, have a general portion, then it'll have a special EU portion, then it'll have a special California portion, a, a special, you know, Australia portion. Um, and that's really not becoming workable with the proliferation of these laws. Before long, you're going to have to have, you know, 100 different privacy policies translated into 20 languages or more if you are trying to run a global business. So we've really been kind of advising clients to move towards a, a version of global best practices. And it does, it looks a lot like GDPR. It's based in the kind of principles of transparency and making sure people know what data is collected and how it's used um, without being overly burdensome in a way that, you know, the, the policy would just be so long and complicated that it couldn't be helpful to anyone. And I think that really is the solution. So, so if I were sitting behind a desk looking at a business that's growing rapidly around the world and I slapped my forehead and I said, well, the good news is we're growing rapidly around the world. The bad news is we're growing rapidly around the world. And I now need to uh, you know, adopt a privacy approach or a data cybersecurity approach that meets the world's requirements. Could, could they give you a phone call and you could help get them set up? Absolutely. Uh, that's one thing that we've been helping clients with 
a lot lately, uh, moving towards that kind of global policy that will enable them to do business around the world. There are variations between these different laws, especially um, as we noted in China, which has its own kind of special rules. But really, kind of 80 to 90 percent of the laws of the substance of the laws are based on the same principles. So if if they adopt that kind of 80 to 90 percent approach, then they are you know, hitting the majority of anything material in the laws. And for the variations between different jurisdictions, then it just becomes a risk based approach of figuring out, you know, what jurisdictions to address where they're doing the most business, where they think the regulators might be looking at them most closely. This is a fascinating subject, and I know we could go, you know, for a while, but we're running out of time, and I want to make sure that we get to the portion of the podcast I refer to as the personality test, <laughs> the portion of it which has nothing to do with law, but uh, but just, it, it, you know, gives us a chance to to get to know you. Uh, so it's kind of lightning round. Quick questions, quick answers. Are you are you ready? I'm ready. Okay. Do you have a favorite movie? And in that movie, do you have a favorite character in the movie? That's hard. I really like movies. Probably Rear Window. Okay. Really, really excellent Hitchcock movie. I yeah. I, I I love Jimmy Stewart and and Grace Kelly's character in that movie is just fantastic, but probably my favorite thing is her wardrobe in that movie. All of the, <laughs> okay. all of the dresses. <laughs> okay, Jimmy, Jimmy Stewart, do you have a favorite board game? Favorite board game? I, I really like any kind of um, trivia game, so I, I like Trivial Pursuit oh. a lot. In law school, I was a big fan of going to like pub quizzes um, I get, did, did I get very, 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 oh, yes, yes. I get, I'm, I get very competitive at these things. Um, that's so, so surprising. Uh, yeah. A lawyer at a large law firm gets competitive. <laughs> that's shocking to me. Absolutely. All right. My, All right. Law, school, my law school class actually voted me most competitive. So, and it wasn't for okay. any um, legal or it, it wasn't for legal arguments. It was purely for board game and trivia competitive. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay. Superb. Uh, all right. Last question. I've asked this of everybody in the podcast. In a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, what is more important, the peanut butter or the jelly and why? Oh, my goodness. The peanut butter. 100%. I mean, I'm from South Alabama, which is peanut country. So peanuts have <laughs> okay. a warm place in my heart. I like them in basically every form. And I'm a big fan of peanut butter. And I, you can have a good sandwich even without the jelly. Like I'm a big fan of peanut butter and banana. But who wants right. jelly with anything else? So peanut butter. Right. Uh, I mean, when you think about it from the point of view of that competitive person who's got the FBI on speed dial, that, you know, the peanut butter, <laughs> that's where the substance is. That jelly is just like frilly distraction, right? That's that's exactly you, 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 who who even needs it? Right. Yeah. Let's get peanut butter fun. and preferably let's, let's eat the peanut butter. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> Good. Especially crunchy. Oh, okay. Yes. Because yes. because that that delivers. That that's that's the real. It does. Thing. I like I like the yeah the texture the full yeah. the full peanut experience. The full peanut experience from someone who grew up in peanut country, so you know what the peanut <laughs> experience is. 
thank you, Fran, for taking the time. Uh, it's been great to chat with you. And for our audience, once again, this is the Ropes and Gray RNG Tech Studio podcast. It is available on the Ropes and Gray website on the RG Tech Studio page. It is also linked and available wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks so much. <laughs>